Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that is building a rocket ship, you know, like their Instrutech, you know, is acquiring companies left and right and is one of the very few that is profitable. So I think that we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, and everything in between. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Eric Mignot. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, very nice to, to be with you today. So let's, let's do a little of a walk through memory lane, Eric. So uh, you were born in France. So tell us about life growing up. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was a long time ago because I'm 52 now. Um, I... It was pretty exciting at that time, uh, you know, um, a lot of transformation uh, since uh, I was born uh, in, uh, in, in, in France. But I always dreamt of, you know, going abroad and visiting other countries and uh, going to Latin America. And I fulfilled my dream a few years later uh, when I left for Mexico and started my career in Mexico. So how do you, how do you land in Mexico? Actually, it was, you know, my readings uh, when I, were, I was young, um, you know, I read a lot about uh, Latin America and I really, really, really wanted to go to Chile. And actually, the only opportunity I found was a few kilometers north uh, of Chile in Mexico. And um, at that time, Carlos Slim uh, was taking over te- Telefono de Mexico, uh, the local uh, uh, telecommunication operator. And he was joined by France Telecom, the French uh, telecommunication operator to do that. So I joined that team and it was very exciting times uh, transforming the telecommunication industry in Latin America. And how is working in Latin America and that mindset in Latin America to perhaps, you know, more of the European mindset? <laughs> I think this is uh, the land of entrepreneurship by excellence because uh, you know, like in all Europe, uh, you have a lot of social norms, etc., etc., that kind of uh, stick to who you are and kind of hinder you from being totally free uh, to be an entrepreneur. Whilst in Latin America, people don't really care about who you are, and um, at least when you are a foreigner, right? So it's basically about what you can do and how you do it uh, that is important, and that is really where I. 
think I created or I, I, I became self-confident into being an entrepreneur. Now, in your case, I mean, you've, uh, you've definitely been, you know, on all types of fronts. I mean, you even were the CFO at, uh, at Swift. So, I mean, you've gone from business development to CFO. So it sounds like you are a man of different hats. <laughs> exactly. Like training my adaptability, uh, you know, through uh, different industries and, and different jobs, uh, actually. But uh, this uh, was really a good training to understand and adapt rapidly to what makes a difference in an industry, right? Because uh, if you live through the transformation of the telecommunication industry, like uh, 30 years ago, and then uh, of what is uh, becoming with utilities at the time where utilities were totally transforming the world, and, and then going to the banking industry and the in insurance industry, that gives you a lot of like framework of understanding what is happening in, in the industry pretty rapidly. And this is where everything came from about building my company, uh, you know, uh, like spotting the right opportunities in the insurance industry. And in your case, I mean, uh, even, you know, late 90s, that's where you kind of like got your feet wet with perhaps, you know, doing your own thing. So what happened there with Certant? Um, it was very funny because at that time I was working for um, uh, Accenture. Um, it was still Anderson Consulting in Latin America. And very, like, we saw that something was happening right with um, what was you know, the beginning, the very beginning of the internet and its impact on the economy. And um, with one of my colleagues from Harvard Business School, we identified, spotted a lot of opportunities and uh, spotted the opportunity to create our own consulting companies and like going, you know, to um, uh, implement uh, the first uh, uh, digital uh, retail platform in Argentina, the first online banking platform uh, in Argentina, you know, helping uh, like the likes of AT&T in Mexico about their digital strategy and working in Brazil. So it was really very exciting times of transformation uh, in Latin America. And we we grew certain up to 70 people and it's still operating today in, in Latin America. And, and in SEAT, you know, where you did your MBA, you know, great, great community, you know, great founders that come out of in SEAT. And as the saying goes, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, right? I mean, this was obviously your, your first rodeo, but not, it was not going to be the last. Now, I guess my question is, why did it take you, you know, so long to go and, <laughs> and start a, your next company? Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question uh, that I haven't asked myself, but uh, probably... It, it's a lot. It has a lot to do with self confidence and and you know feeling ready and feeling that you know things are coming together for you to be um, you know in the right place with the right people, finding the right partners uh, to set up the company. And at some point, I got so like frustrated by corporate world that I saw no other issue that you know after twenty five years in corporate world to set up. Uh, again, my company was uh, uh, plus simple. And this is basically what I did at 45, um, like seven years ago. I mean, it took literally 14 years, Eric. Yeah. 
I mean, 14 it's, years is, is not, not, not a small amount of time. I mean, 14 years where, you know, you were in Caixa, in Caixa Bank, you know, you were in Borsarama, you know, you obviously, you know, took different, different positions, but I guess that shaped or helped you in shaping more the idea of uh, Plus Simple. So at what point do you think that Plus Simple, you know, really came, you know, to mind from an idea? Because as they say, ideas, they take time to incubate. They're even dormant there in, in our mind, and we don't even know that they are there. But I guess, what were those sequence of events from ideation all the way to the launch of the business? Yeah, it was, actually, it was pretty simple. Um, I mean, Plus Simple was born based on um, like all the fr frustration I had as you know, CEO of an insurance company seeing all the transformation in the industry. And at the same time, we needed to you know, uh, start again from the blank sheet of paper in order to really transform the industry. And, and basically what I saw um, when I was you know, a MD at Keyscott's insurance company, a very innovative and um, a very strong insurance company, a specialist insurance company, uh, basically what I saw is uh, that for small commercial clients like um, you know, a, a taxi driver or a pharmacist or whatever, um, when you want to insure all of your risk, you're being asked 300 questions. You're going to sign between five to 10 policies. You're going to receive 1,000 pages of paper at a time where, you know, technology is transforming everything. So basically, I knew uh, we had to invest like over 20 million euros to create, you know, the, the technology that was really going to transform the industry. And at some point, this is what I did. So I just left uh, Hiscots and then set up uh, Plus Simple. So then tell us about Plus Simple, you know, more more specifically for the people, you know, that are listening. What ended up being the business model of Plus Simple? You know, how do you guys make money? Okay, so it, it's, again, it's pretty simple. Um, so you're a, you know, small professional clients. Uh, you want to ensure all of your risks. You, you're going to connect to the Plus Simple platform we have created the technology that digitizes uh, the full value chain. So basically, your John Smith um, uh, tattoo shop, you're going to connect on the platform, you're going to answer 10 easy-to-understand questions, you're going to uh, receive a bespoke proposal to cover all of your risks, so you can ensure your activity, your office, your car, uh, your health, uh, your like personal protection, sign online, pay online, and get immediately insured. And then the machine... It's going to split uh, that premium that uh, you paid into five different insurers, into 15 different risk concepts, um, and automatically manage uh, you know, all the information uh, that is fed back to uh, the insurers. So it's really a transformation of the industry where all that would have take, taken you know, days, uh, a lot of paper uh, you know, exchanged by all the parties in the value chain, so technology is really changing everything. And, and there, we are taking a commission, a recurring commission. So basically, if you, if you pay 100 uh, euro uh, or dollars per premium, uh, then we would get a cut of around 20% recurring over time. And this is how we pay for our services. And why, why no one wants to insure you know, Uber drivers or tattoo shops? What's the deal? Uh, it's an interesting one. What we see for small professional clients, it's it's very specific actually because you need to understand who those guys are, how they work, what are their risks, and uh, you need some technical, you know, insurance technical uh, uh, 
the capability to insure for very specific and very small risks. So in a variable cost industry such as insurance, with, uh, which is lacking a lot of, uh, of technology, this is very costly. And at the same time, uh, uh, the revenue, the premium and the, and the commissions you're getting is very low. So if you don't have technology, basically it's not profitable, right? So what is happening is uh, overall 40% of the small professional clients, like independent uh, workers, sole traders, etc., uh, tend to struggle to get insured because they have specific risks, complex risks, and at the same time, nobody wants to insure them. So this is basically what Classimple is uh, doing, is focusing on those risks that nobody wants to insure, that represent 40% of the overall market. Uh, so it's a huge opportunity, a lot of value for the client, a lot of value for the small brokers we are working with to uh, provide solutions to those uh, small clients. It sounds like you also have been very intentional about making the company profitable. I mean, yes. that's not normal for an insurtech type <laughs> of operation. So, so why? Why was that the case? I think probably because when I um, co-founded Presimple, I was 45. Uh, I, I lived through, you know, uh, the internet bubble explosion. And I knew that at the end of the day, if you want uh, to build a sound company, you need to be profitable, right? And um, of course, uh, there are those like winner-takes-all uh, type of dynamics, but uh, I mean, there are so few winners in that competition to overthrow money, uh, you know, just to build a leadership position that we decided to create a profitable uh, company since uh, the beginning. And six years after creating Simple, we broke even so, now we are profitable and probably one of the only insurtech in the world to, to to be profitable. And and then you know, in terms of financing, because you guys have raised money too. I mean, how much capital have you raised, whether it's equity or debt? So basically, we raised twenty-seven million euro in a series A and B. So it's you know, compared to most of the insurtech, it's a tiny amount uh, that brought us to um, you know. Uh, 21 million euro of revenues and uh, 75 million euro of premium. And then uh, once we were profitable, we raised debt. Uh, and we just announced uh, around this KKR um, of 90 million euro. Uh, that is basically debt to finance our development and finance M&A. Because actually uh, something also original uh, is uh, that we bought seven small companies uh, that we integrated on our platform for the past two years. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. On, a, on an insure tech operation like this, I mean, how do you have to think about equity and, and debt? Mm, it's an interesting one. Actually, equity should be uh, there to finance your R&D and, and, you know, put you in a position where you really have built a solid asset. And then that asset should be the one that, you know, allow you to generate revenues and, and start breaking even. And this is basically what we did. And once you break even, then this is where debt is, you know, coming in and uh, helping you leverage uh, the assets uh, that uh, you have built. But, you know, like paying back with the profitability you're generating, uh, the debt uh, that allow you to further invest in your development. And in And in this case, I mean, in terms of the acquisitions, you know, that's very interesting. I mean, you've done already seven acquisitions. You've raised more money to do more acquisitions. Why, why the M&A route? How do you guys see the M&A route as, um, as, as part of the growth? So th that is another, um, you know, peculiarity of our model, which is basically that we decided uh, to engage into programmatic M&A. So the name of the game for us was be able to execute industrially small acquisitions that we would integrate on our platform and that would generate a lot, lot of synergies because we are basically uh, buying subscale um, insurance operations that are subscale because they did not invest in technology. Uh, they have like aging founders and they are um, fragile in, in, in terms of if uh, they have some adverse you know, effect from you know, a COVID situation, for instance, um, they can be, uh, uh, you know, in a difficult situation. So basically what we do is we offer uh, to the founders a very nice, you know, consolidation exit. Uh, we put all their know-how on in our uh, tech platform, and then we leverage the 7,000 small brokers, distributors we're working with to accelerate revenue growth. So basically, we are just multiplying by a factor of five uh, their profitability by doing so. And this is creating a lot of value. And at the same time, because uh, they are small, uh, nobody wants to buy them, right? And the natural consolidator in the industry are not interested to buy those uh, small companies. And those small companies you know, exist all over Europe. So there is a huge playground for us to consolidate all those small you know, insurance operations and put them uh, uh, on our platform. So this is basically what we're doing. And I mean, as they say, most um, acquisitions, you know, they fail. But when where they really do fail is on the integration. So yeah. how have you thought about, you know, obviously if, uh, if you're making acquisitions a really important piece of the, of the operation here and the long-term growth of the business, you probably thought really deep into how the integration, you know, should be handled. So can you yeah. walk us through that? Yes. So um, that was, you know, an obsession since uh, the beginning, which was basically a big programmatic. That means creating the tools uh, 
from a process standpoint and from an IT standpoint that would allow us to basically kill the legacy of the targets uh, within um, uh, max two years. And this is basically what we have done, which is developing all the tools that allow us to basically stay with zero legacy. And on average, we are currently integrating in 18 months, and we should be able to do it in 12 months, and probably in nine months uh, uh, you know, in, by the end of next year. So basically, we are in a process where we have zero legacy and you know, um, reducing drastically the risk of failing uh, to create value with uh, those uh, acquisitions. And when it comes to the integration, I mean, you have uh, different pieces. You have the customers, you have the the technology or, or the product, and then yeah. you also have the team. So yeah. out of those three, which one would you say is the toughest one to integrate and, and how, what kind of measures have you guys put in place to make sure that, you know, there's no issues? Yeah, on, on the customer front, Usually, when we do integrate uh, those targets, uh, we tend to improve uh, the quality of the offer uh, because we are bigger, so we can uh, negotiate better conditions uh, for the clients. Um, so that is taken care of, and uh, you know the renewal rate or the churn uh, that we see is is minimal uh, on the seven operations uh, we have done. Then on uh, the processes and IT, et cetera, um, as I explained, we develop our platform to immediately plug in on, uh, onto the target system, download all the uh, information and start operating the business directly on our own platform, thereby like, uh, you know, uh, digitizing totally uh, the integration process from uh, an IT uh, uh, standpoint. And then from the people side, uh, we tend to uh, buy very small operations, and um, usually what happens is we tend to uh, consolidate the relationship with the people who, uh, like the underwriters or the founders, and then we have a number of administrative people uh, that, in many cases, just leave the company because uh, they are no longer required to operate something that is fully digitized afterwards. So uh, this is basically how things are. How things Got are. it. And now, and now for the people that, that are listening here, you know, to get a, an idea of the scope and size of the operation, how, any, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that yeah. uh, you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, basically, um, those operations are very small between, let's say, 500 to maybe 2 million uh, euro uh, revenues in terms of commissions. So we tend to see operations uh, that are operated by probably five, seven people max. Um, and the founders uh, tend to be uh, between 55 to 70 years old, uh, the oldest founder uh, uh, from the company, uh, company we bought in Italy. And, and basically, this is showing that those people most of the time are struggling you know, to exit uh, their company because uh, they are too small, they are subscale. And we are offering a very nice alternative for them to, you know, um, exit uh, the uh, the business. And and what about Plus Simple? I mean, how big is Plus Simple today? So uh, we are going to close this year with um, thirty five million euro of commissions, uh, which is going to be around one hundred and twenty, one hundred thirty million euro uh, uh, premium. Um, and you can compare. I mean, <laughs> some of the insurtechs have raised. Like hundreds of millions to reach, uh, you know, uh, the hundred million uh, 
premium mark. So we have been very, very, uh, you know, uh, equity efficient in terms of developing the, uh, the, uh, the business. And we are probably one of the uh, uh, biggest insurtech uh, for commercial risk uh, in the world. Now, the word insurtech, you know, obviously in 2022, it's a much, much better understood than in 2015 when you guys got started. I mean, how, how, how have you seen, you know, the insurtech space, you know, change, you know, from then until now? What is, what is quite interesting, I would say there are three categories. One category is like the direct-to-consumer plays, um, that I've seen enormous investments in marketing and acquisition costs, etc. Um, some very big, uh, large IPOs uh, like in the US and like challenging stories in terms of value creation long term because basically they are operating in the commoditized market where the name of the game is acquisition cost and price, right? Because it's commoditized products. So if you want to insure your home, it's pretty straightforward, right? Um, so there, um, there are some challenges uh, around what is exactly the values that are, is being created by InsurTech. I see a second uh, uh, trend, uh, which are uh, the InsurTech that are collaborating uh, with uh, incumbents, uh, providing new tools in terms of AI, um, uh, for instance, shift uh, technologies, a very nice French InsurTech operating all around the world. Uh, a unicorn, and those guys uh, really are performing very well and creating a lot of value for the uh, for the industry. And then uh, there are some models like us that are a bit more niche, um, but you know really also uh, positioning themselves on places in the industry where technology is really changing uh, the game and creating value for the clients and creating value for the industry. And this is explaining why we have been capital efficient and uh, profitable at the same time. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Eric, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Plus Simple is fully realized. What does that world look like? This is a world where, you know, all those small, like, small uh, businesses that are really you know, not understanding what insurance can do for them, uh, start to realize that insurance has been created uh, uh, 4,000 years ago uh, by uh, entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs, right? Babylonians uh, invented insurance to finance, you know, their commercial activities or to make uh, their commercial activity viable. So insurance is actually one of the most precious tools that you know man has invented to make business uh, you know an attractive place to be and for entrepreneurs to 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 basically take risks. So my dream is uh, you know reconciling customers with insurance and insurance not being that kind of mm, I don't really understand the value of you know what insurance can do for me and you know insurance actually can be what makes you. Uh, you know, take the risk to be an, an entrepreneur. So my dream is really to, you know, make insurance uh, valuable again for entrepreneurs. Now, imagine that I put you to a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time 
maybe to that time where you were coming out of INSEAD uh, doing your MBA and where you were thinking about like maybe, hey, you know, I want to do something on my own. And imagine you're able to sit down that younger Eric and giving that younger Eric, you know, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It sounds not very, um, you know, uh, consistent with uh, the image of entrepreneurs, but I, I would tell a young Eric, be humble. Be humble, listen, listen to the guys that, you know, went through a number of stories where they learned things and can share with you, you know, the good things they did and the bad things they did. And, and you know, being humble and being open to, you know, your environment makes you very adaptable. and you know, not being arrogant is probably, you know, um, allowing you to avoid making big mistakes. And how do you go about, you know, because sometimes it's tough, you know, especially when you're young and, and you're, you drink your own Kool-Aid and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, being humble and being able to listen, I mean, any, any guidance or any tips, you know, for all the young entrepreneurs that maybe are listening now, how should they go about it? One of the things when, when you start entrepreneurship is, mm, I'm jealous of my idea, right? Uh, I have a fantastic idea. I want that idea, bring that idea to the market. And I want to keep it re relatively secret, right? In order for me to make sure that I'm the only one to have that idea and implement it. And actually, it's a big mistake. I mean, when you, you have an idea, uh, you should tell everybody that you have that idea and you know start being challenged. And listen to how people are challenging you and improving your idea and making sure that it's robust enough, you know, afterwards to answer, uh, you know, the question of the clients, the question of your partners, the question of your, your of your people, the questions uh, of the investors. So really, you know, like confronting your idea to the market and to as many people as you can actually is a good idea. It's not about, you know, being jealous about your ideas and keeping it secret because at the end of the day, this is not what's to make you rich, right? I love it. So, Eric, for the people that are listening, you know, that would like to reach out and say hi, what is the best way to do so? I mean, uh, LinkedIn uh, is 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 perfect. I, I'm I'm reading uh, my LinkedIn and, and responding to uh, to all the uh, the queries uh, that I get through LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, Eric, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.